The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters only and do not represent the official views of any city, county, or state government. This information is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon in lieu of consultation with an appropriate legal advisor. Listener discretion is advised. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when we come for you? The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. everybody. Welcome back to Geek in the Cup, the only podcast to talk about the real police work and real fake films. I'm Jeff Todd, aka The Geek, creator of One Perfect Shot and Daily Grindhouse. He is our good friend, Detective Andy, a real-life true blue detective, here to tell you how it would all really go down in John Carpenter's 1976 film, Assault on Precinct 13. But before we get on to... Discussing Assault on Precinct 13. I do want to talk about the sexual assault allegations that have been going around the film industry and America in general. There's been this uh, this awakening. And I, and I want to talk about it because our episodes have featured some of the people that have been in the news lately. Our first episode featured Kevin Spacey, who we now know is a serial sexual predator. Allegedly, and we have to use that word for for legal purposes. But our last episode featured Charlie Sheen, and there have been allegations that have come out against him. And I'm sure there are other actors in films that we have covered that we will hear about it at some point. It just seems to be the the nature of the way this. I don't want to call it scandal. I I called it an awakening and that's that's what it is. It's in this growing awakening, there's going to be more stories. We've only seen the tip of the iceberg here and slowly the rest of the iceberg is is starting to emerge. Um I wanted to talk about this because I originally posted on Twitter after the Kevin Spacey allegations came out that something to the effect of if you watch a Kevin Spacey movie, you're putting entertainment above morality. And Detective Andy was kind of impulsive and, and you know, Twitter's not the, the place to go to kind of flush out your thoughts and, and, and explore what you're really thinking. I feel like we don't have time to think because we're too busy telling people what we thought. And I, I probably shouldn't have posted that because it's not, it, it doesn't really represent the way... It represents the way I was thinking in the moment, but I don't think it represents the way I think as a whole. Um, so before I get into that, I mean, Detective Andy, do you have a tough time separating art from the artists? Uh, I can separate it pretty easily. Um, I, I don't. That doesn't mean I condone it. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, of course. Uh, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't send uh, my kid to a party with Kevin Spacey. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, right. um, but if if you look at 
yeah, like Seven or um, American Beauty. Like American Beauty is a great movie, and this doesn't change how I feel about that movie or his part. Like he's a great actor. Um, he also happens to be a predatory scumbag. So right. odds are I won't see much with him in it coming out. So, and that's and that and I'm okay with that. Um, but that's not. I'm not going to hate on what he's done uh, professionally. Um, based on that, it just means like, yeah, I can support him not being glorified in the media going forward. Um, but I, I'm not going to dislike what he's done uh, film-wise because of what he's done personal-wise. I'll just I don't like him as a as a person. I don't like him as a human being uh, based on you know what I've heard he's done. Um, but I don't dislike what he's done professionally. Yeah. yeah, and that's closer to where I am. You know, I've been thinking about it in kind of two camps. You know, on one hand, you have these actors and directors who create characters and make films that are very transparent. Those films represent who those actors and who those directors are really are a lot of Woody Allen films tell the story of an older person, an older male falling in love with a teenage girl. And, you know, are there Woody Allen films that I can watch now? Yeah, of course. I mean, take the money and run bananas sleeper. I love those movies and I think they have tremendous artistic value, but I don't know if I'll watch Manhattan again. That movie legitimately makes me uncomfortable now. Because we know right. what the situation is with Woody Allen. Kevin Spacey is different in that, first of all, he's an actor. He's one of 3,000 people that's right. working to create this piece of cinema. And he's getting lost in the characters he's portraying. He's portraying a character. He's not portraying himself. It's not It's not transparent. He's hidden. You know, We don't know Kevin Spacey. We only know John Doe. You know, we only know Frank Cross. We don't know Kevin Spacey. Obviously, everybody thought they knew Kevin Spacey. And then when these allegations came out, it was very... It was shocking, you know? This was well, a you, you better catch them. You better catch some House of Cards on reruns because they closed that down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and they should have. And Netflix, uh, Netflix response to this yeah, absolutely. has been perfect. Well, it just says we're not going to support this kind of behavior. And if you're going to be this kind of person, regardless of your ability or your fame, you're not going to get a pass. And I think that's great uh, because powerful people getting a pass um, is one of those things that just grates on me in in Mm -hmm. all the wrong ways. Like it just absolutely pisses me off. Right. Right. And, and, you know, that's our, that's our political climate right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, and here's the thing, like, Remember that hashtag that was going around around uh, a while ago? What was it? Uh, hashtag Me Too. Yeah, Alyssa Milano created that. But I think that emboldened a lot of people, and it empowered even is probably even a better word that it empowered a lot of people to come forward and say, "Look, this this happened to me," uh, and I think they should because the the sort of the cult of silence around that thing is what's made it so epidemic. Um, because people know that if they're somebody with even a little bit of, of, of clout or power or influence that, that they can get away with that. Um, and it's something I've seen get clamped down on in, in my own line of work in the last, you know, I've been a cop for 14 years and 
even 14 years ago, it wasn't going on to the extent that it was, say, you know, 30 years ago. But, um, you know, I've seen quite a number of people charged with official misconduct um, literally, you know, lose their careers and go to jail um, for for sex on duty type of um, issues. Um, and, and deservedly so. Like, it's it's just that that wall you can't break if, if, if you're on duty uh, and you're in a professional capacity then you just can't can't cross that line um, you know and there's a lot you, you get these ethics training classes like if you're on duty and and you know you're getting coffee and the the um, the person getting your coffee for you is like super cute and they they give you their phone number like should you take it um, and depending on who you're talking to, some people say, oh, no, you can't. You have to say no, no, you know, no, ma'am, no, sir. I, I can't do that right now. I'm on duty. Uh, and then there's people who's like, look, you can you can take the number, but you you can't call and tell you're off duty. Right. Um, and I and I sort of fall into that realm. Like you're still a human being. Uh, and if you make a connection with someone um, on duty, as long as they're not a victim or, or, you know, a suspect or somebody directly involved in a case, um, I think it's probably okay to to keep that connection, but you have to keep it off duty. It's a personal connection, not a not a work connection. And if it is one of those aforementioned victims or suspects or you know convict or prisoner, or some you know somebody you have an official duty to to care for and protect, um, the answer is just no. It doesn't matter. You just get to ignore your connection. And if you can't handle it, you need to. to talk to your supervisor and get relieved you know but i mean i've, I've watched it happen I've, i see it happen on a regular basis and it's it's unfortunate when it does but you everybody knows like you can't do it right and you know i don't know that world but i know the film world and i know what a boys club the film business has been uh really since it started and i i love that that women are now kind of kicking down the door of the boys club and saying, you know, we're not going to take it anymore because they shouldn't. It's ridiculous. It's offensive. It's disgusting, you know. Um, but it's okay to separate the art from the artists. I guess that's my, my general point with this. There are situations when it's nearly impossible to do it and uh, uh, a chore that I refuse to take on with directors like Woody Allen and and, and, and those kind of, of films that are so transparent. But when an actor who is one of 3,000 people has done something horrendous, and if that actor is, is part of a... It's not a transparent role. It's John Doe. It's Frank Cross. I think it's okay to separate art from the artist because these films have artistic value. They mean something to... Uh, cinema in some cases pop culture and that's not something that that you can just dismiss i'm not going to dismiss seven it's an amazing movie it's still an amazing movie it remains an amazing movie kevin spacey can't taint seven because that's not kevin spacey that's john doe you know what i mean i mean that's kind of where i come down on it right or wrong and everybody's going to have a different opinion on this and I respect their opinion. This is mine. This is kind of how I'm feeling right now. I don't know if it's going to change. I don't think it will. I, I I really feel like this is, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because it it, it 
it pained me. You know, it, it affects me on a, on a very personal level. I don't like talking about this stuff. I don't like, I don't like talking about this on our podcast, to be honest with you, but it's something that I wanted to, um, I wanted to address because we've had, um, a couple of people on my Twitter feed, uh, mention it, um, especially after I made the, uh, the comment about Kevin Spacey and, uh, you know, so I've been thinking about it ever since and, um, and that's where I come down on it. So I just wanted to have that conversation on our show to, because I know other people are kind of wrestling with this right now too. Uh, it's a tough time. It's a tough time for the film community. You know, it started, I think with, uh, with Devin Faraci at uh, birth movies, death and it. It just kept going. You know, it's happening on a micro and macro level in the film community um, and um, as in America as a whole. And it's time for that reckoning. And I and I welcome it. All right, guys, we're moving on to some bigger and better things. Uh, happier things, I guess happier is relative in this instance, but we're talking about John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. As I mentioned, Assault on Precinct 13 was the first John Carpenter film that I saw when I knew I was watching a John Carpenter film. I had seen Big Trouble in Little China. I had seen Halloween. I didn't associate those with, with a name. You know, those were just kind of movies. I was still pretty young in my movie going, um, experience at that point. Assault on Precinct 13, I remember because my buddy was raving about this movie. And when I saw it, it stuck with me. It scared me. It scared me more than Halloween did for whatever reason. Like, it just really was this visceral experience. I think in part because it's leading up to the assault on the precinct. It's it's very creepy. You know, these guys are performing random acts of violence throughout the city. That was more tangible to me than... Anything that I would see in Halloween, um, there was a uh, this this disturbing reality to, to the events leading up to the assault uh, on the precinct, and for that reason, the the, the film really stuck, really stayed with me. Uh, John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors of all time. He, I was in fact back in the Daily Grindhouse days, I was writing a book called Assaults, Escapes, and All Kinds of Trouble: The Life and Films of John Carpenter. It's not complete. It's uh, you know I got a little over halfway through the book before some different um, different projects popped up and, and took me away from that. But he's somebody who is very willing to share his craft. You know, there were directors like like Tarantino once again who doesn't really do audio commentaries. You know, Tarantino will do commentaries on his friends' films. He'll do commentaries on films that he has written. Um, I think the exception of that's the Reservoir Dogs commentary, but that's kind of taken from different interviews. But Carpenter, I, I think, has done a commentary track on just about every film that he has done, uh, in addition to films that, that he has loved, like Rio Bravo, which is the inspiration for Assault on Precinct 13. Now, Assault on Precinct 13 is not a remake of Rio Bravo, and you read that in some of the reviews for Assault on Precinct 13. But it, it's it 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 takes it it takes a hint from Rio Bravo, you know. It kind of takes a, a a thread and uses that to create this bigger picture. But before we get into that, Detective Andy, are you how familiar are you with with the with the films of John Carpenter? Just I mean, having not been really a, a horror movie fan, I, I haven't seen a lot of the stuff that he does. But I'm certainly familiar with the name just from 
previews and people talking about the movies and just, you know, the usual stuff, right? Right, and you're not really a horror guy. Never, never really a horror guy. You know what's funny is I think people would associate John Carpenter with the horror genre. I think John Carpenter would, would identify himself as a horror director, but I've never felt John Carpenter as a horror director. You know, he's made so many movies and so many genres that I don't know if you can pigeonhole him into one specific category. You know, I think that if... I think Edgar Wright is probably the closest thing we have to John Carpenter right now because they're both making genre films that are true to their category um, that are more than just works of homage. There are original stories being told in, you know, the science fiction genre, in the horror genre, in the action genre. Um, I don't know. I just think I, I don't think there's a lot of daylight between Edgar Wright and and John Carpenter, um, even on a musicality level. I think they both have a fundamental understanding of how to use music in film. And, and that kind of that kind of fascinates me. But but let's play a little game here. This is going to be one of our new games. I think I might make it a, a reoccurring feature of our show. Let's play Detective Andy. Have you seen? This is uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna name some titles that I want to know whether or not you have seen these movies. You know, if if you hear the sound of uh, of typing, um, that's me googling up John Carpenter movies. <laughs> this is gonna make for fascinating podcasting. Oh, listen to that. Listen to that typing. Typing away. Yeah, yeah. So let's run down the list here. Uh, how about They Live? No. What about The Thing? No. Oh, my God. This game sucks already. I know. I know. It's, it's, I told you. <laughs> I don't... Well, did you, did you at least appreciate the film? Let's, let's start there. Let's start at the, the, the very bottom row. You know, I, I was going to give it a ton of shit, and I probably still will, uh, from, from a technical standpoint. But then I was, I was reading up that it was a... You know, low budget exploitation film, and it was a hundred, under a hundred thousand dollars, but it was made in nineteen seventy six. So you you should have been able to do better with even under a hundred thousand dollars. You hear um, that, Johnny? You could have done better, kid. <laughs> but yeah, man, you're exactly right. This was uh, a smaller budget film. This was his second theatrical film. He had done Dark Star in nineteen seventy four with Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon went on to help create the Alien franchise. With uh, with Ridley Scott, I shouldn't say franchise. He helped create Alien with Ridley Scott, which obviously became a, a franchise. The uh, relationship between Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon was not great. The two parted ways essentially after Dark Star. You kind of had two alpha males trying to create something special. It just didn't work. So Carpenter then does Assault on Precinct 13, which was part of a two film deal that he had signed. But when he turned in the script for Assault on Precinct 13, the studio was so excited about this, they decided to ditch that second film and focus all their firepower on Assault on Precinct 13, so to speak. Now, Dark Star is Carpenter's theatrical debut. But when it comes to Assault on Precinct 13, Carpenter always described this movie as his true theatrical debut because it was the first film that he filmed on a schedule. It was the first time he had a lot of fun making a film. It was the first time he worked with Deborah Hill, who would go on to make a lot of films with John Carpenter. Um, it was the first time he was working with Lee Brackett, who would go on to star or co-star in the Halloween film. Um, there's a lot of firsts with Assault on Precinct 13. 
And for that reason, I consider it to be Carpenter's true first film, even though technically that honor goes to Dark Star. Now, a little background on our uh, man of the hour here. Carpenter was born in New York, but his family relocated to Bowling Green, Kentucky. And this was a time when, you know, Carpenter was growing up in the segregated South. So he had seen things that disturbed him um, on a real basic human level. Uh, he's a pretty liberal guy. And he was looking for a way out, and film was his way out. And he once he discovered that there was an actual film school, USC, um, he saw that as his, as his ticket to get out of Kentucky and to, and to kind of really explore this passion that he fell in love with going to uh, the movie theater in his hometown, you know, seeing things like the thing from another world, seeing things like the African Queen. I think the African Queen really freaked him out, actually. He told a story one time about the... Um, the scene where Bogart's pulling the boat um, and uh, really getting freaked out by the idea and the concept of, of leeches. And I think that was the first time he really started to build the idea of horror films in his head. But Assault on Precinct 13 is interesting to me because you can see the strands of a young, politically active carpenter in there. There are themes in this movie that are brought up that I think are very important to John Carpenter. And that's one thing he does so well. He is able to weave in ideas and concepts and commentary, social political commentary into his films without it feeling like you're getting some kind of education. I mean, they live start to finish is an indictment of trickle down economics, it's an indictment of um, the Reagan policies of the eighties. You know, um, assault on precinct 13 is, um, to some degree, an indictment of our penal system. You know, it looks at the effects of captivity. It's also, I think, a way of not necessarily celebrating, but a way of communicating the good of all police officers that, you know, no matter what, the police officers are going to work to better the situation, regardless of what the odds may be. And I think that that plays a part in Assault on Precinct 13. Um, you know, this, I, I mentioned earlier that this was, a lot of people think of this as a remake of Rio Bravo. And here's where they're wrong. Rio Bravo takes place over the course of several days. Assault on Precinct 13 takes place essentially in a 24-hour window. Rio Bravo is about, it's, it's not necessarily about the attack on, the jail, but it's kind of about the dedication of brothers. It's a brother trying to spring his, it's a, it's two, it's one brother on the outside trying to spring the brother on the inside out of prison and the attack that, that ensues. Um, Assault on Precinct 13 is about an entire gang coming after a police precinct. So it's, it's much bigger in scope. I think it's bigger in just about every single way than Rio Bravo, even though Rio Bravo takes place over those, over that multi-day period. Um, Assault on Precinct 13 is more about the attack on that jail cell or, or the attack on that precinct and those characters. It's not necessarily about the relationship that's formed between the sheriff and an inmate. Um, like a, uh, uh, like Rio Bravo is. I mean, Rio Bravo at times flirts heavily with becoming a romantic comedy. There are some very light moments 
throughout Rio Bravo. In fact, it's not really until you're kind of three quarters of the way through that the movie really starts to pick up and move. Carpenter's film gets down to the business immediately. There aren't any real happy moments. There's some funny moments. There's some great one-liners delivered, um, particularly by uh, Darwin Justin, who plays Napoleon Wilson. Uh, Darwin was uh, Carpenter's neighbor, so they had a good rapport, and that really comes across in the film. Assault on Precinct 13 is an inherently dark film. You know, I wanted a vanilla twist. That line will haunt you after seeing Assault on Precinct 13. So it's kind of funny that people consider Assault on Precinct 13 to be a remake of Rio Bravo when Rio Bravo is just, it's a real apples and oranges comparison. There are very few things that tie these films together outside of law enforcement and inmates working together. One of the reasons I love Assault on Precinct 13 is that it is unique in John Carpenter's filmography. All of John Carpenter's films are, um, they have some kind of fantastical element to them. Assault on Precinct 13 is the only one that really takes place in the real world. Um, the uh, the exception to that would be something like Someone's Watching Over Me, which is a made-for-TV film he did, or Elvis, which is another made-for-TV film that he did with Kurt Russell, actually, the first film he did with Kurt Russell. But theatrically speaking, Assault on Precinct 13 is entirely unique in Carpenter's filmography. And I think for that reason alone, it deserves um, some attention and, and some acclaim and celebration. This was the first film of his to get a official remake. It was remade in 2005 with Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne, directed by Jean-Francois Richet. It's a very big film. It is more concerned about shootouts than it is the characters in the shootout. And it just strips away a lot of the meaning and intent of the original film. It's not... The, the remake isn't a bad film. It's just kind of a disposable film. It's just... It, it's basically forgettable. You know, we would get remakes of... Let's see... The Fog... We would get remakes of Halloween. There is, I think there's a television series that Carpenter is producing right now based on They Live. There is another Halloween coming out with Danny McBride. There, So, you know, it's like Hollywood continues to mine the well of John Carpenter. And they're doing that for a reason. Because John Carpenter's films are entirely unique. And even though the majority of his work wasn't financially successful at the time... They have all virtually turned a profit now because they they are they have become iconic. They're, his films have been become ingrained into both film and popular culture. You know, when you look at the thing, Big Trouble in Little China, they live. These are iconic films by an iconic director. And you know what's interesting is that as iconic as John Carpenter is, you still have people who are knowledgeable about cinema, Detective Andy, who don't know who John Carpenter is. And I think that's because he has been pigeonholed in this horror genre, even though, again, he's not really a horror director. His films always have that fantastical element, but I wouldn't say he's a horror director. He's a he's a, he's a director who has made horror films. He's not a horror director. Um, that's kind of how I see it. But anyway, we are running short on time. We are going to check out the trailer for Assault on Precinct 13. And then when we come back, Detective Andy is going to shine the mighty light of truth on our subject and talk about what the film got right and what the film got wrong. We're also going to check out the top five films from John Carpenter. Freeze. This is the police. Drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads. On Saturday, 
six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, Solo. the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You want to stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station. They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Precinct 13. Cut off. Isolated in the middle of a city. As a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare. war going on down here. We can't find the damn thing. A white-hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. So, Detective Andy, our listener is in suspense. What did you think of Assault on Precinct 13? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I didn't. I was very neutral about the movie going through it, and I don't know if that's just because my movie taste is more more of a modern taste. It may not be anything against the film, especially considering the whole 1976 uh, exploitation film aspect of it. I've never really been into those kind of movies. Yeah, I knew this one was going to be kind of a tough sell to you. Um, A, because of the exploitation vibe. B, because, you know, it does have some horror elements. It does have... Um, some really tough imagery to, to process. And I knew that wasn't your thing. So I was kind of uh, leery to even recommend this this film for the podcast. But it is one of my favorite John Carpenter films. And I do think there's a lot of great setup in the leading up to the assault. You know, they could have done it in a much more choppy, sort of cheesy way. But they actually sort of, that's like the only place that any sort of plot existed. And it was still be- below the surface. Because uh, you, you didn't really know why this gang is doing what they're doing, other than they all just like to carve in their arms and stare at the camera blankly. Yeah, so yeah. so the um, scene he's alluding to, uh, just just so you know, in case you haven't seen the film, in the beginning of Assault on Precinct 13, the, the street gang is essentially carving into their arms and bleeding into this bowl that's on a table in front of them. One guy's on a couch and the other two guys are on a chair inside this apartment. And I only know this because I it's either on the commentary or on a book I read um, or an interview I wrote, read with John Carpenter. But this is an actual cholo ritual. I don't know if it still goes on today, but back then it was an actual ritual that these gangs did. You know, I know now they kind of jump you and beat the shit out of you. Uh, for like five minutes until you can do it. Back then, it was a little more tame, and they apparently just wanted you to bleed into a bowl. Um, this scene reminds me a little bit. Uh, you remember the Golden Child, uh, Eddie Murphy's Golden Child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they they do that yeah. in this in that film too. Except it, they're a little more uh, covert about it. They like to hide their blood uh, underneath oatmeal. Apparently, is how they did it in the Golden Child. You know, the first thing that struck me because obviously, I, I in movies like this, I start out like really 
into the note taking. And at some point it just falls off. If things go way hella haywire, I just fuck it. I can't keep up. Um, oh yeah, man. I'm the same exact way because you get so wrapped up in the film. You stop taking notes. I've been doing that since the day I started watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I get it. Um, well, the, the, you know, the opening scene, and if, I don't know if it was meant to set up why the gang was sort of retaliating the way it was, but it, it, it really just sold, showed the wholesale slaughter of um, gangsters by the police, right? Like these are people running away from whatever it is they were doing. Now, some of them were armed and some of them were unarmed. Um, but the cops uh, who were standing over them, whatever they were running down, um, didn't care if they were armed or unarmed. They just literally executed every one that they saw. It was almost, it reminded me of that scene in Saving Private Ryan where they were up uh, on the bunkers and the Germans were running through the trenches and the entire group was just sort of shooting the Germans as they came through, which, okay, that's war, World War II, valid. Uh, damn right, the Germans would have shot them back. Um, but this this particular scene wasn't. It was just like seven guys, two or three of whom were armed, running from something or running towards something. Uh, and the cops just uh, executing them like Normandy style, <laughs> like that's uh, so that just that's the first thing that just kind of struck me is is uh, obviously to a modern day um, group uh, that wouldn't really go down like that. That's not to say it it couldn't if there was more to it, like if there there was an actual they were actually fighting back. Um, and that's not to say the ones who actually had the automatic weapons, had they stopped and, you know, sort of turned towards the police with those weapons, wouldn't have gotten shot as well. But just mowing everybody down was just that, that just it didn't sit right with me. Uh, and, and then listen and then listening to the the radio broadcast or the TV broadcast or whatever it was that was playing after it, talking about the gang violence and these horrible, horrible gangsters that were all gunned down and and, you know, not anything about how horrible it was, but just that that. The police were were doing this, uh, and it was almost in like a heroic uh, voice that they were talking about it, and I just didn't. It just didn't sit well with me. Um, and and then the the narrator or the narrator of the radio or whatever it was was just kind of like, yeah, and it was really weird because it was a an interracial gang. There was whole holy crap. It's so unusual. Like, yeah, exploitation movies are kind of their own beast. They always. They try to film the best action they can so they can cut a good trailer. I, that's not necessarily the case with Assault on Precinct 13. I know the scene you're talking about was added to the movie because, it, in fact, I think they did it after production had actually wrapped. Um, the people that you're seeing are actually just buddies of John Carpenter. He needed to do this pickup scene because they wanted to have the opening be more more of an explosion of action. I think it was kind of the slow build. Well, the movie as a whole is kind of a slow burn, right? Um, but I think they, they needed a pop of action to really hook the audience. That was the methodology behind that, that opening scene, but you're certainly right. It's the, um, the broadcaster doesn't know how to really frame what just happened. Um, and to some degree, I don't know if John Carpenter did either at the, at the time, um, but yeah, you're, you're, you're right about that. So, so we cut from there, we cut from that to, um, Ethan Bishop going to work, right? So he's a, he's a highway patrol Lieutenant. Um, and for some weird reason gets assigned to a, an LAPD patrol precinct that's 
closing down. Absolutely no sense. It, I had to pause the movie while I scratched my head trying to figure out why the fuck a highway patrol lieutenant was going to work at an LAPD precinct if it was an LAPD precinct because the uniforms or the uniform on the sergeant who was there didn't have any patches on. It was just a blue suit uh, with a badge. I, I'm assuming it was LAPD. Apparently. Um, and I think they were out of blue uniforms, which is why they said, fuck it, make him make him uh, California Highway Patrol. Um, I, I just, you know, because I'm trying to judge these things from an actual uh, law enforcement police perspective. Uh, and it's it's just that you lost me at, at Highway Patrol uh, at an LAPD precinct, especially one that's closing. Right. Um, do, uh, do, do precincts close like that, though? Is that is that an actual thing? Uh, yes and no, but it wouldn't it wouldn't quite be like that. It would just I mean, they would just close that shit down and it would be somewhere else uh, and there wouldn't be some skeleton staff still there taking calls. It would just be boarded up. And if there was stuff to move out, they just move it out like it wouldn't work like that. Now, when when Ethan Bishop uh, gets in the radio, gets on the radio, at first I was like, oh, cool, this is going to be super realistic. He's actually going to go in service on the radio because that's what we do. You get in the car, you get the radio, and you go in service. And then he just has a conversation like he's on the motherfucking phone on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't just get on the radio and and have a conversation like you're on the phone. Radios are for priority traffic, right? Like, if you're just rambling about your morning, uh, there could be somebody getting shot at who's desperately trying to get out on the radio, and they can't because you're rambling. Right, right. I'm starting to think this movie may have dashed any hopes you had of a good night at the movies. I had high hopes, and then it just, it just sort of <laughs> fell off. And then we cut to them moving these prisoners, them moving uh, Napoleon Wilson uh, and the other prisoners he's with. And it's it's the people guarding them are, are not uh, like Department of Corrections. They're not LAPD. They're not... Highway Patrol. It's like a, a detective and then a couple guys that just have a uniform that says security. Well, they just they have patches that say security guard. So it's they're literally hiring like Pinkerton <laughs> to move these these maximum security prisoners. So it was literally just like throwing darts at a newspaper for me. It's like what what the hell is going to happen next? It's completely off the charts. And and I have to say, because it's right after that that we cut to the bad guys uh, kind of walking and riding in the car. And they're just like when they're just sort of driving around mean mugging everybody. <laughs> the three of those guys in that car, they all look like if you told a 10 year old and his friends to look tough as fuck while they're sitting in your car. Yeah. That's that's the looks they had on their faces. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. I was just like, "What is happening?" They just look like they're they're driving really fast to get to a bathroom because one of them's got to go, and the other two are hoping he doesn't shit in the car. <laughs> oh, it's like our favorite sushi story. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad sushi, man. We all been there. So yeah, it it was just a cascade of terrible for me from a judging it from a realism perspective. Uh, right off the bat, I, I mean, that's not to say I didn't enjoy the the film, but you know, I got to look at these things. Let's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I didn't, but no, no I did. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, like my whole point of being here is to look at these things through a lens of realism, and there was just nothing, 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 even up to the point where now we're we're closing the precinct, and he loads up a shotgun and then puts it in a crate. Who puts a loaded gun in a crate? <laughs> well, him apparently. I mean, it came in handy later. So let's talk for a second about the vanilla twist scene. Because this is 
the most disturbing scene, I think, in John Carpenter's filmography. And there's two ways to read this. You can read this from a pure exploitation angle, putting in something that is deliberately manipulative um, in terms of what it's trying to do to, to your emotions. The other reading of this is that it is a chance to look at the inevitability of random events. That's a, that's a quote from John Carpenter. John Carpenter said that was kind of his intent with this with this movie is to is to focus on the inevitability of random events. And we live at a time when there are. Um, let me back up. Actually, this ha- you know the 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 remake didn't feature the vanilla twist scene. Because it would be too controversial. You couldn't do it today. And you couldn't do it today because it actually happens so often in reality. You know, today, this kind of thing happens all the time. There are these random shootings. You know, there are uh, mass shootings. Or, you know, it's a very violent world. It's a very different world than it was back in 1976. And the the interesting thing to me has always been that this scene in 1976 is just completely shocking and deplorable and disgusting and and it does kind of prey on every single emotion you have you want to protect this little girl um but i don't know if the audience really had anything to relate this to back then um you know i mean obviously we have the horrors of vietnam we have you know the um the political climate is changing um you know the the world is in all uh you know gumdrop lanes and, and chocolate rivers but I, I don't, it, it certainly wasn't the way it is today. And so it's always been interesting to me that you had an audience, when this film was released, you had an audience that maybe didn't relate to that specific event, but then you flash forward to today and you couldn't really include that scene in a major film because it happens so often. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a weird dichotomy. Yeah. And, and I read somewhere that that, that the MPAA didn't like that scene at all because of how brutal it was. And it was brutal, even by today's standards. I mean, it, it, that one really gets you in the feels. Yeah. Um, and I think they got around that because they, I think the producers said, you know, look, the MPAA said, we're going to get an X rating if you don't to remove this scene. And then I think they said, just tell the MPAA we're going to remove it, but don't. And they didn't. Uh, I think that's the, uh, I think that's a story. Yeah. The, the thing I didn't like about that is, is, who just drives off and leaves their daughter? Like I get there's grief, but I, I don't know, man. I feel like as a as a as a parent, I don't know that I would necessarily react. That I'd be I'd be looking for some payback later. But, I mean, narratively, um, this seems significant significant because it gives us the the reason why the warlords are um, attacking the precinct because the, the the father has run into the run into the station well and they seem to be awfully slow in getting out of there because he has time to like get off the phone walk up see his daughter run up to her like kneel down over her look up at the the guy who's shot the driver and him say guns in the car right and 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 him to get in the car get the gun and then the car is like finally driving by um and i get we have to suspend some disbelief just to fit everything in but um I, I don't want to suspend that disbelief. It took too long. Yeah, all the reactions are weird because the dad just takes off and then the guys, the gang is just kind of hanging out. Well, and then the catatonic state for the rest of the movie, like that just didn't, they just, they escort him out at the end. He's just like, he just nods and smiles at somebody. He'll be like, dude, get the fuck up, get a gun. We need help. There's like four of us in here. Um, yeah, I, that, that was a bit, bit strange to me, but it's, it's part of the whole, you know, the whole thing was just, just a little bit off but then again all, all, almost all the exploitation films are off and just a little bit away 
You know, and one thing that was uh, was funny to me about that is he's running, right? It's almost like that that Godzilla movie running where they're like running and it's like they're moving the background behind. And then he looks up and it's the middle of nowhere, the middle of fucking nowhere, man. And there's a phone booth. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Just a phone booth. <laughs> and I was like, what's that phone booth doing there? How many people are going to listen to this and be like, what's a phone right? booth? Is that, isn't that where Superman changes clothes? Like, what's it doing there? Uh, it's not really, I guess that's not really a police realism perspective. It's just a confused viewer. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's all the same. I'm often the confused um, viewer. The, you know, the other thing that gets me is there was not literally a single aimed shot in that movie. It was all hip fire. Even with the, the hunting rifle, dude just like tucks it under his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> like it, the, the Ethan Bishop character with the the hunting rifle. Yeah, it's like it's like he's given up shooting, not like he's about to shoot. He, it's literally like it's not into his shoulder. He's not looking down the scope. It's he literally holds it like I, I don't even know. What, you don't hold anything like that. He he just tucks it up under his his. Literally every shot in this movie was like that. I think the um, Lee had a couple aimed shots with a, a pistol, uh, but that was the only thing that that even approached. Um, Kind of, I, I don't even want to. I don't even want to utter the word "real," uh. <laughs> real-ish. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I think prior to recording "Assault on Precinct 13, the weirdest moment in film that we've covered, uh, or of the films that we've covered, has been Marion Cobretti eating pizza from a freezer with a pair of scissors. Hands down, oddest moment we've had uh, on the show. Um, Assault on Precinct 13 is going to give that moment a run for its money. I'm talking about the infamous patty cake scene in Assault on Precinct 13, something I don't think I've ever seen in any film really ever. Oh, yeah. Instead of Rochambeau and like the rest of us, they do some weird prison Rochambeau. Yeah. Yeah. Prison Rochambeau. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. It has to be. It has to be. I want that to be a thing so bad. I want... I want the success of a Rochambeau to depend on whether or not you get a pack of smokes. You know what I mean? This, If you win this uh, game of Rochambeau, three cigarettes to the winner. And in all honesty, we're being kind calling it Rochambeau. Rochambeau gives it an air of manliness. This is full-on fucking patty cake. So to set this up for everybody, basically, it's it's towards the end of the film, and they're trying to decide who's going to hotwire a car and drive to the now less mysterious phone booth. It comes down to Tony Burton, who you may know is uh, Apollo Creed's trainer in the Rocky films, and our uh, our antihero, Ethan Bishop. So they play this game called Hot Potato. Boys, take it away. Looks pretty good to me. Looks like hell. It's all we got. Who goes? I got to tell you, I don't know how to hotwire a car. I'm a cop. Between me and Snow White. Shit! Shit, shit! What's wrong? We haven't flipped a coin yet. I'm gonna lose. You got a bad attitude, Wells. I always lose. Had bad luck all my life. Now, how do you think I ended up in here? Maybe it'll change. It might. If we don't flip a coin. Let's do something else. What? Potatoes. Okay. One day, two day, three day, four, five day, six day, seven day, more. Eight day, nine day, ten day, eleven. Kiss my ass and go to heaven. Why oh you spell you? I told you I'd lose. God damn it, we're gonna do it again. Hey, hey. There isn't time. 
So bottom line with Assault on Precinct 13, this is one of my favorite uh, action films of the 70s. The action scenes here are really visceral and chaotic. They're not technically brilliant. You know, we were talking a little bit about how they were, they're holding their, um, their weapons. But I think the, um, the chaotic nature creates a reality to the situation or reality-ish, uh, as we said earlier. It's the soundtrack of this movie, though, that I find to be the most effective element. It's just really Carpenter's best score, I think. Um, it's not... So I'm going to say best score. It's the one that gets in my head the most. It's the one I find myself humming. Um, that and the Big Trouble in Little China soundtrack. Those, I think, are just so... Um, ingrained in my in my in my love of film really you know um once i saw assault on precinct 13 um i watched it quite a bit because there was something there was such an indie feel to this film that it taught me a lot about how to go about creating your own stories and filming your own action so it has this kind of milestone feel to me a little bit you know and maybe I'm kind of attaching some of my sentimentality on that I have for this movie um on to whether or not it's a it's a it's a good or bad film you know I'm allowing that to kind of impact the debate but um but there is a vintage feel to this film. It kind of has this um, real snappy, Hoxian kind of dialogue. Uh, another director, John Carpenter, um, loves the director of Rio Bravo. So, you know, I think the, the, the movie is, is valid for those reasons. And I think everybody should check should check this out. It's just, it's a crazy, crazy ride. And it's a slow burn, too. It's quiet until it's not anymore. Um, so, I, I dig it. Uh, Detective Andy, you know, what about if, you? Like, let's say, let's throw everything out the window and just say, like, that actually happens, right? Nobody can hear... They all have silencers. They're assaulting a precinct. There's nobody within 500 yards of you uh, in a metropolitan area like L.A. And so that's actually happening. And there's two of you uh, and a catatonic guy, and you have two prisoners. Like, So my question as I was watching the movie is, do I really cut those prisoners loose and give them weapons? Because in the back of my mind, it's like, as far as I know, these guys are just going to shoot me in the back of the head while I'm looking out the window and go join the gang outside. Like, like I, that, there was a huge leap of faith from the main character's part, from Ethan Bishop's part, to to decide to free those guys and, and give them guns. Now, it, it worked out. He needed to. Uh, and Napole- And I'm sorry, at the end of that, I was, like, I was basically like, Napoleon Wilson gets a pass. Like, whatever he's convicted of... If you have to keep it, because I guess it's murder, so I guess depending on his his murder, because you can't just, you know, throw a victim's family to the dogs and say, F you, your guy was kind of nice to us, so we're going to let him out of prison. So if he has to stay in prison, like, his commissary is full, like, he has his own cell, like, maybe even put a TV in there, like, you know, the guy earned something there, you know? Right. He doesn't have to uh, hot potato anything anymore. All right, guys, it's time for the top five John Carpenter films of all time. Now, I told you guys I was going to be doing this on Twitter, and we got flooded with people wanting to chime in with their own top five. Uh, Doug Tilly chimed in. Doug Tilly actually uh, was the second writer, I think, that we hired at Daily Grindhouse. He has The Thing at the number one spot, followed by The Fog, Big Trouble in Little China, Halloween, and Assault on Precinct 13. He has a little note here. Yeah, I really love The Fog. Sue me. I'm not going to sue you, Doug. I love you. Uh, he has an a, a, a amazing podcast that you need to check out called Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. You can find it online at ericrobertsistheman.com. He hosts it with his buddy Liam. I listen to the show religiously. It's uh, a, Speaking of top five, it's probably a top five film podcast because 
they they always go into talking about um, uh, other things. Eric Roberts is a gateway. You know what I mean? So, so make sure to check out Eric Roberts is the fucking man podcast. Uh, you guys will dig it for sure. My buddy at the Mike 31. Uh, he has Halloween. I assume that's at the number one spot, followed by Assault on Precinct 13, They Live, Escape from New York, and The Thing. Those are solid picks. Uh, let's see. At Real Brew, uh, he has The Fog at number one. I think Doug, Real Brew may love The Fog more than you. Uh, he has that followed by In the Mouth of Madness, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, and Halloween. Uh, Bracky Wacky, <laughs> at Bracky Wacky, B-R-A-K-Y-W-A-K-I. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, but hopefully you guys... Uh, Hopefully, uh, I'm not uh, butchering that, Josh. Uh, he has at number one, The Thing, followed by They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and Escape from New York. He also has a little note says, yep, that's right, no Halloween in sight. That's actually near the low end of my list. I'd rather watch Escape from L.A. I am weird. You are weird, Josh. Uh, so let's go to uh, my top five. Um, so the first one for me, I'm going to go uh, from five to one. So, so number five for me is Escape from New York. I'm going in. Carpenter's Escape from New York, the high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. So Carpenter was originally working on the Philadelphia Experiment, but he had difficulty finding a really strong third act for the film. So he went back to AFCO Embassy, the company that was funding the film, and he told them that he was unable to finish this, at which point they asked what else he had. And he told them about this idea he was kicking around, about this urban western set in a dystopian future with a lone, tough-as-hell anti-hero with the personality of a switchblade. Who does that sound like? That sounds a lot like Napoleon Wilson to me. And that's what I mean. I mean... They, they, that's why Assault on Precinct 13 is important in the filmography of John Carpenter because you can see the threads that he would go on to explore and the characters that he would use in several different films. I mean, Napoleon Wilson is the is the is the prototype for that kind of anti-hero. But anyway, you know, originally the studio didn't believe in in Kurt Russell as an action star. They really wanted Charles Bronson, somebody who was uh proven, somebody the audience would see and immediately recognize as a as an authority figure. And once again, the studios were wrong. The studios seem to always be wrong about John Carpenter films. Because even though John Carpenter's films don't uh, really explode at the box office, they eventually seem, more times than not, to reach iconic status. You know, Snake Plissken is an iconic character. The Thing is an iconic science fiction film. Halloween is an iconic horror film. Michael Myers is an iconic character. You know, it, it's just, uh, Carpenter knows what's going to last. He knows that these stories, if he tells a good story, it's a, it's eventually going to find an audience. That's what Carpenter does well. It doesn't matter what the studios say, because more times than not, they've been wrong with him. Um, anyway, number four is Halloween. Halloween. The night he came home. I know this one's going to be number one for a lot of you, and I would not argue that for a moment. Uh, there's just so many John Carpenter films that I love. It's tough to, as I said, put them in any kind of real ranking. But I thought about this list for a while, and, uh, and, and so Halloween is number four for me. It's a perfect film. It's a Swiss watch of a horror film. Uh, some of the other films that are ahead of Halloween on my list aren't as perfect, but they get more views in our house because of the um, the experience they deliver, regardless of the time of day or season. Halloween is another slow burn, kind of a Carpenter specialty. Carpenter knew that effective use of tension would play better than buckets of blood and empty screams. This film illustrates suspense over shock, you know, and, and I think that, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is my favorite horror film of all time. 
And they are kind of a hybrid of that film is a hybrid of the two working both suspense and shock. Um, Halloween's not really worried about shock. Halloween's worried about building that building the tension. The most unsettling moments are when Michael Myers just appears in the background, kind of patiently watching his prey. That's the image of Halloween that sticks with me. It's not that dramatic cat and mouse at the end. It's the quiet moments. It's him standing in a row of clothes that are drying in the backyard. It's him standing uh, just beside uh, the hedges watching Laurie Strode walk down the uh, walk down the street. Those are the moments that that really creep me out. Um, and that's why Halloween's a kind of a perennial favorite, right? Number three in John Carpenter's top five films of all time, They Live. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick it. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Now, this movie I have a lot of sentimental attachment to. So this film's an indictment of the Reagan years, how susceptible we are to advertisers and, and the, uh, the directions they want us to follow, the products they want us to consume. It's an incredibly smart film. It has the longest fight scene in cinema. The star, it stars the legendary Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David. Now, here's a quick story. Rowdy Roddy Piper was a customer of mine at the very first video store that I worked at. He would come in and rent Blackbeard's Ghost every time he was in town. And this was peak like WWF days. I think it's WWE now, but I honestly don't watch wrestling these days. So um, Roddy loved watching that movie with his kids. He was this local legend. And he was certainly the biggest thing to come out of the neighborhood I grew up in. And he's the reason not only I watched They Live, I actually didn't know it was a movie until he told me about it. I would have been like probably 15 or 16 at the time. And the funny thing is, is after I saw that, I realized that Roddy was essentially John Nada. He dressed like him. He talked like him. He had a lot of the suspicions about people and authority that Nada did. Um, he was just, Roddy was a really, really cool guy and always happy to talk to a kid that pestered him with movie questions repeatedly every time he came in the door. Um, he always said he wanted to have a John Wayne, John Ford type relationship with John Carpenter. And that never really materialized. Um, but they made, they live. And man, that's not nothing. The second best John Carpenter film of all time. It's time to jump on the Pork Chop Express. This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of magic? The darkest magic. Ow! They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. He make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no 
idea. Now, originally, Carpenter was going to direct The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy for Paramount. This is a project I think could have really been interesting under Carpenter's direction. The thought of uh, Eddie Murphy working in kind of this fantasy world with John Carpenter, who's a director who, who really does have deft comedic timing. He slips in little jokes uh, throughout his films that um, that they, they really land because he understands the, the, the timing and when to introduce those. Um, but the thought of a childhood minus Jack Burton, like, I, I don't want to trade Jack Burton for Eddie Murphy's Golden Child. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not cha- I'm not trading that with anybody for anything. My childhood without Jack Burton and the Porkchop Express is like Pliskin without an eye patch. Like, it just doesn't work. The character of Jack Burton is just as crazy as Snake Pliskin is mean. Though both characters are out for themselves, Burton realizes he isn't clever enough to survive on his own. And he doesn't really adjust until, like, the third act of the movie. Um, the film is an homage to Carpenter's love of Asian cinema, films like Legend of the Eight Samurai, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain, uh, Swords of Fame, wild action, punchy dialogue, uh, certainly Carpenter's most quotable film. I love the idea that we have essentially a misplaced hero here, somebody who is relegated to a sidekick but doesn't know it. This has amazing sets which create a dark kind of Shaw Brothers-like quality to him. This is just vintage Carpenter. Long live Egg Shen. And finally, my number one... Boy, you knew this was coming. something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, and it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! This film is a masterpiece of masterpieces. Uh, There is paranoia that permeates the claustrophobic confines of Outpost 31. Who's been turned from human to host, lurking just beneath the surface of our humanity, waiting to eradicate any potential threat to its existence? It's vicious, ruthless. It could be right next to you without you knowing. Now, Howard Hawks' film, The Thing from Another World, is kind of its own thing. The thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, is more of a true retelling of the of the uh, the story Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. John Carpenter created a science fiction masterpiece with this film. There's a lot to admire in this movie. Um, the effects uh, by Rob Bottin, which are even more impressive today than they were in 1981. The incredible cast, 
led once again by uh, Carpenter regular Kurt Russell, and the second best performance of his career, not even McCready can take Elvis. Carpenter created a film that really forces us to project onto the alien life form. Greed, disease, evil, conformity, even humanity itself. It's what we make of it. You know, that character uh, or the creature in the thing is really what we make of it. It's really far more complex than the outline suggests. And that's something that Carpenter films tend to do repeatedly. Thing is a love letter to science fiction and really the craft of cinema. And that's why this movie is not only my number one John Carpenter film of all time, but it's in my top five films of all time as well. The Thing was a box office failure. Not only was it released within weeks of E.T., it was also a film that, like the creature itself, had to really kind of gestate before the audience warmed to it. It isn't the first film that failed to make an impression that went on to become a classic. And it certainly won't be the last. Um, Carpenter could care less about the box office. He's concerned with the person. He's concerned about the viewer. He's concerned about the audience watching the film. You know, I remember one time in an interview with him, he told me that he plays for the horizon. And when he said that, he meant that he's playing, he's playing a longer game. Something's going to last. And if you strip away the costumes and the acting styles, you know, hopefully it's 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 something that will stand the test stand the test of time. Hopefully it's something that's just as relevant today as it was in 1981. The thing is that movie. Big Trouble in Little China is that movie. They Live is that movie. Halloween's that movie. And yeah, Escape from New York is that movie too. There it is, Crime Fighters and Cinephiles. If you take away one thing from the show this week, make sure it's the game of hot potato. It's the best way to handle all conflict. In fact, If Israel and Palestine could just do a simple game of hot potato, this world would be a better place. Don't forget to stay tuned for our soundtrack selection of the week. We are, of course, playing John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 theme from 1976. I know you guys are going to dig that. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Geek and the Cop and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Geek and the Cop. You can find me on Twitter acting like a complete fool at the Jeff Todd. That's Jeff with a G. You can also follow Detective Andy at D-E-T Andy underscore Geek Cop. That's D-E-T Andy underscore Geek Cop. On the show next week, Walter Hill's Red Heat from 1988. To the men and women behind the badge, we tip our hats to you. To the geeks, here's to good watching. Salute!